And I'll never forget, we got this call to go to this house where there was an awful noise going on and there was shouting and screaming. So Joe and I went down and as we goes into the stair, was a tenement. You could hear this noise of banging and crashing and screaming and shouting. And I said to Joe, I said, we better wait for some backup. He says, there's, there's no backup. He said, we're, we're stretched. He said, come on. He said, we'll do it. He said, tell you what, he says, you get ready. He said, and stand behind me at the door. So I get my baton out and I'm holding it down beside my legs. And the noise was terrible coming from this house. So Joe bangs on the door. And the door swings open straight away. Bang! And standing at the door is a man, bare-chested, big guy, bare-chested, and his chest is smeared in blood, and he's got a hatchet in his hand. I joined in 1978, but I wasn't posted until 1979, and I was down in Campbelltown, and I was in Diggs. I was in with a lovely couple, the girls. That was my Diggs. The police had got me Diggs in there. So my first Christmas as a police officer was on my own, in my own wee room, in my digs with this elderly couple who lived there. And I still hung my stocking up. <laughs> but And then there was nothing in it in the morning, which was a major surprise. And then I explained that with the fact that I maybe hadn't told them that I'd moved. <laughs> I was 20 years of age, a young policeman. And uh, on Christmas morning, Tom, it would be my first ever Christmas morning uh, as a police officer. And I was sent out on my own at seven o'clock when we used to muster at quarter to seven in the morning. I was sent out in my own in uniform down the street, which is quite a big thing for a young probationer. So about 20 past seven, I got a radio message to the effect that there was suspected housebreaking at a certain locus in Campbelltown. So I made my way there on foot. And as I'm getting towards that, I radio in any update, what's happening. Yes, there's a guy on the roof round about such an address. If you go down this street, you might be able to see him. So I'm vigilantly making my way down Princess Street or whatever it was, looking at all the roofs to see if I can see anyone. And then any description, any update, any vehicle. Oh, yeah, we've got a description. It's a guy in a big red suit. Looks like he's got a hat on and a big beard. You get the idea. And they're all in the office laughing, of course, pissing themselves <laughs> laughing at me running about trying to get this housebreaker. Aye, uh, Simon, the best arrest of your career. And, and look where it took you. It was a launching pad. I never got him yet. I never got him yet. And you know he never left a footprint or a fingerprint? The, the story the story, <laughs> the story of your life. <laughs> in uniform, Christmas Day was always a, a quiet day. In CID, invariably, on Christmas night, there was a murder. And I remember... Oh, for many Christmases, four or five in a row when I was in the series Crime Squad and whatnot, you'd be called out on Christmas night. Not Christmas Eve, but Christmas night. Unfortunately, it was usually a, a tragedy, a family tragedy. I remember one where one brother had killed another, killed the other brother, and the family had decided that rather than lose two sons, they would cover it up. And so they dragged the body out into the street and made it look like a stranger attack. And of course, it took us about twenty-four hours to untangle all of that. It was just a, it was just a, it was a, a drunken fight over a girlfriend on Christmas night. But I remember being on murder investigations on many Christmas nights. Christmas Day was a public holiday, of course. And Boxing Day wasn't, but Christmas Day was, and the first and the second of January were. 
And I said that I was group four. I think if somebody checked the records, they'll find that uh, I was night shift for about the first six new years of my career from 1978 onwards. And you didn't get paid night shift from Hogmanay into New Year's Day. It was always a bugbear that uh, because you started at 11 o'clock at night on Hogmanay, it didn't class as a public holiday. And there was a full shift on. And then on New Year's Day, there was only half a shift on in the morning because that was the public holiday. It's exactly the same with, with us. New Year's were entirely different. Christmases were busy. Christmas night was always busy for the CID. Relatively quiet for in uniform, from my memory. In New Year, it was the other way around. In New Year, I, I remember night shift at New Year. It was funny because when I was a young policeman working uptown in Edinburgh, the pubs were full, of course. Everybody spilled out the pubs. Party, party, till about 12 midnight, till about the, the turn of the year. And then everything went quiet, deathly quiet, till about three in the morning. And at three in the morning, the whole place lit up oh, hell, that again. Was... It was like flicking up. Yes, it literally was. And I remember once being, uh, when I was a very young policeman, I would only be 20 or something like that. I remember being, we were shipped down to one of the big housing estates in the north of Edinburgh, which was very busy. And of course, what had happened was people had been up the town, having a good time, had a lot to drink, made their way home. And then about two or three in the morning, the argument started. And of course, then the calls came in and dozens and dozens of 999 calls, domestic disputes mainly. And so we were all shipped down and we were paired off with older guys. And I remember being paired off with this old sergeant who subsequently I worked for. He was a great man. Joe McLean was his name. He's been dead a few years now. Ex-military man. Joe, a superb policeman and a great sergeant. But I remember being paired with him and literally running around attending these emergency calls. And of course, the wisdom there was on no account, unless you absolutely had to, don't arrest anybody, don't lock anybody up. Because for two reasons. One, it took people off the street. Yeah. You were off the street for Oops. an hour or so processing a prisoner. But secondly, the cells were full. And that's what the charge officers didn't want was keeping people over the public holidays. Yes. It was a, a big oh, problem. A so we, we rattled around these cases. But I remember going to one. It was one of these lessons in life, one of these object lessons. And I'll never forget, we got this call to go to this house where there was an awful noise going on and there was shouting and screaming. So Joe and I went down. And as we goes into the stair, there's a tenement. You could hear this noise of banging and crashing and screaming and shouting. And I said to Joe, I said, we better wait for some backup. He says, there's, there's no backup. He said, we're, we're stretched. He said, come on. He said, we'll deal with it. He said, tell you what, he says, you get ready. He said, and stand behind me at the door. So I get my baton out and I'm holding it down beside my leg. And the noise was terrible coming from this house. So Joe bangs on the door. And the door swings open straight away. Bang. And standing at the door is a man, bare-chested, big guy, bare-chested and his chest is smeared in blood, and he's got a hatchet in his hand. Joe steps forward, puts out his hand, and says, A good new year to you. And the guy steps back, Say what you're... And Joe turns to me and said, Tommy says, it's a fine thing. He said, you come to a man's house on the first of the year, and they'll not take your hand. Well, the guy stopped dead, as if he'd been poleaxed. They said, oh, Sergeant, oh, he said, so, sorry, sorry, sir, so, sorry. It'll be a terrible night. Come in, have a drink. Come in. Brilliant. 
And it was absolutely brilliant. Talk about emotional intelligence. Joe just sussed out and de-escalated straight away, went in the house, <laughs> and unfortunately it was his own blood <laughs> he was smeared with. But 15 minutes later, he was away in his bed to sleep it off. His wife was staying with a neighbour, and we left with a hatchet. I take it you confiscated the drink as well, just in case he got up and got drunk again. We had to use them for public safety. <laughs> Thomas, it's amazing how one thing triggers another. And you were talking there about the, the domestics. It's a very serious part of that, that during COVID, apparently all these types of crimes, domestic crimes and violence against women in particular, uh, kicked off. And I hope that we can cover that in future podcasts. We'll get some people on here that can talk to us about it. Because neither you or I are up to date on that. But it was a real phenomenon, and it's caused real issues moving forward as well. Lots to unpack in there. But what I was going to say to you was that there was two stories I thought of. One was the Cowell Games. We used to have to police the Cowell Games in L Division. That was in Danoon, in L Division. And we tried it in different ways over the years. And you being crowd control and major events and whatnot would understand that. And one of the years they brought the Glasgow Cops over, because it's not far. So they brought the support unit and cops from different divisions over to police the Cowell Games. And that problem you're talking about, about the cells at Danoon, they had filled the cells within the first couple of hours of getting to Danoon because there was drunks in the street and there was what they would call a breach of the peace. That's just people doing what they do at Cowell Games. So within a couple of hours, the boss had to say to them, listen, we're going to let all the people out again. You're going to need to calm down a wee bit here. We don't have enough cells for this carry-on for a whole weekend because the cow game started probably the Thursday tea time and went right through till the Monday morning when everybody left on the boat again. The other thing was the old firm. I remember working with the duty DI for Strathclyde on an old firm day and he said to me, while the game was going on at Hamden, he said to me, let's get out of the city because it's all going to kick off. And we don't want to be about the city when it happens. I always remember going to the control room at Govan and telling the controller where we would be and what our route would be so that they would know where we were. And already the calls were starting to come in just towards the end of the game. But we had the game well patrolled, Tom. We had the crowd well patrolled. We had the game well policed. In those days, there was still a lot of incidents, but they were well contained and well looked after. And, and it just was what it was in those days. There was maybe 100 arrests or something at an old firm cup final. But as we moved about, I remember going to Kirk and Tillich. I remember going out to Kilsyth. I remember going round the outskirts of Strathclyde. And in one particular, I can't remember where, the switch, I think it was Beard Street, the switchboard just lit up. And that was the start of the mayhem. And that was a couple of hours after the final whistle. That's when people got home. And all the religious divide, all the sporting divides, everything came to the fore through drink. And from then until the early hours of the morning. It wasn't just the west of Scotland, uh, Simon, because in West Lothian, we had exactly the same consequences. I was the divisional commander there. It wasn't just Rangers versus Celtic. It depended on the scoreline. It depended how the game ended. If it was an honourable draw, then everybody was kind of satisfied in a sort of sullen way. Could have been better, could have been worse. If it was a defeat for either side, then there were serious consequences. And as you say, you could time it exactly. You say, final whistle, time they got on the bus, 
time the bus takes them back, times the disgorge into whatever club they were going to, and about an hour or so later, then it would kick off. You'd have disturbances in the street, and then later on in the evening, you'd have domestic disputes and, and very serious domestic assaults. Every new year was tainted by the old firm game. The 1st of January, 2nd of January old firm game was a feature of the calendar, certainly for the police in this part of the world, that's for sure. Probably all over Scotland, Tom. Tom, I, the thing I remember, some of the heartwarming stuff that went on at that time of the year, because we always raised money for charity, we always took parts in lots of things in the communities that were going on. But one feature, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, I was remembering the, the six weeks leading up to Christmas back in the 70s and 80s, and it really was robberies that were the problem. Because what we don't have in this day and age is cash moving that we had back then. I remember some of the jobs that we had, real violent criminals uh, committing armed robberies all over the city. It was mayhem for that two or three weeks of December when they became very active. The post office, everywhere was getting hit for cash at that time of the year. Do you remember it as that as well? Very much. In fact, we had a we had a situation in the city centre of Edinburgh in the shopping days before Christmas. One of the big Securicor or one of these big cash carriers were carrying close to a million pounds in cash coming from the various shops. And in the 1980s, I think, was the peak time for us for armed robberies. And there was a very heavy team from you, through your way, Barlanak, which I always remember, were very active for several years. And that was desperate stuff. That was shotguns, jump counter, fire at the ceiling. It really was. It was Wild West stuff. In the early 1980s, when I was in the Serious Crimes Code, we were armed on a regular basis because of intelligence about these armed robberies. And it's funny that it's now a rarity. In fact, a couple of years ago, there was a, a good old-fashioned armed robbery up at Glen Eagles Hotel in Perthshire. Oh, yes. It was so notable um, that I actually read about it and actually wrote about it because it was like, it really was like a, a glimpse of the past. They were caught, but it was quite a well-executed job. And I said, in this time when computer crime is at this height, it's almost nice to see, <laughs> in a kind of perverse way, it's quite, it's quite interesting to see one of those old-school armed robberies. I wonder how old those robbers were. They're probably looking for somebody over 60 years of age for a team of guys over 60 that are still doing armed robberies because they were mashed up, etc., weren't they? Went in and smashed all the glass, all the cabinets and stuff. That's right, they did, and they took valuable watches and things. No, they were younger than that. They were caught. They were younger than that. They'd obviously just read their grandfather's memoirs. <laughs> yeah, very strange. Whereas back in the day, I remember in the squad we had three in one day, three armed robberies that we were involved in one day. We were just going from one to the other. It really was a terrible time of year. I worked in Yarrows before I joined the police, and there were 6,000 men worked in Yarrows. So that was the equivalent of Strathclyde Police, all in one place, all getting their holiday wages at the same time, Tom because the yard would maybe close across Christmas, New Year. It was maybe closed for a week, 10 days. So you were getting maybe a double wage or whatever, a wage packet, which some people will be listening to this thinking, what on earth is he talking about? But people got paid cash in those days and didn't want money going into their bank for all sorts of reasons, but it wasn't done at that time. The technology wasn't even there. So you can imagine how much wages that was for 6,000 employees getting paid at one time. That would be replicated across the industrial heartland of Scotland. I mean, there'd be a lot of uh, cash outs at Christmas and the amount of money floating about would be enormous, absolutely enormous. 
you were talking there about looking after people and things. That, a thing I remember very distinctly when I was a young beat man, just about November time, there'd be an, an order come out from the division that we were to identify older people who were living on their own on your beat area, and you were to enter their, their name into the, onto this list, which the division collated. And they used to get a blanket and a bag of coal from, I'm sure it was a police charity. At that time, there was a police-aided clothing scheme, which used to give clothes to children who needed it. There was a police boot and shoe scheme. These were all things left over from the Victorian era, where the police were also a kind of a social service. But that was all gone by my time. But still, there was this business of a big warm blanket and a bag of coal which you could have delivered to older people living on your beat. And of course, it worked in a number of ways because, okay, you identify people and stretch out and give them a bit of help, but also it made you actually go around your beat searching for and trying to identify these people so that you knew who they were so you could give them a hand. So it was quite clever. It worked in a number of ways. And of course, all that is now, it sounds archaic. It sounds out of Charles Dickens almost. But I remember that scheme and it worked very well. You mentioned a thing there, beat. Now that's probably archaic now as well, Tom. It's maybe something that people use now but don't really understand what it was back in the day. But what you say is very important, I think, for what's going on round about us just now in 2023 and all the feedback that I'm getting from the Federation and everywhere else is that it's cutbacks, cutbacks, cutbacks. Every year there's been compromises made, and yet the police have been asked to do more frontline policing. What I'm going to ask you about, what you're talking about there is what I would term as soft policing skills. Those community skills have been able to go in and sit and have a cup of tea with the local shopkeeper or publican or whoever it might be, which was a real feature of uh, rural policing, if you like, back in the day. But when I came to the city, I realised that it was actually even more important in the city when a major inquiry uh, burst in an area, let's say Cessna in Glasgow or whatever, it could be anywhere. The local community policeman, or he wasn't known as that then, the local Bobby on the beat was the first guy that you spoke to because he knew who you could go and talk to, who the contacts would be, he was partly with the, the Asian community in the area, the leaders in each of the communities in the area. And those soft policing skills took up resources that couldn't possibly be factored in to an economic spreadsheet now that I think is being used in the cutbacks. Hours spent, manpower, all these calculations that we put in. You and I both know that most of the hours put in by beat cops didn't pay dividends right there and then, but they built bridges with the communities where the witnesses came from at the end of the day when they were required, those relationships. They also afforded community cohesion and sort of comfort. But I found being taught to work a beat properly, and I was lucky. I've been lucky all, I was lucky all through my service and, and the people that I met and people that I worked with, and I was taught to work a beat by an older very experienced policeman, a man called Bob Turnbull, who I became friendly with, remained friendly with, but Bob was an absolute craftsman. He knew exactly where everything was, and he had elevated working a bit to science, and he was very good. So I learned the, really the art or the craft of policing working a bit 
do you think there's a modern equivalent of that, Tom? Do you think that we've still got that legacy of experience that, that understands the importance of that in your first few years as a police officer? No, I don't. I don't want to sound like old father time, and nor do I want to say, ah, the modern police are nothing like the old days. That's a cliche. But the truth of the matter is that because of all the cuts to street services, as I would call it, boots on the ground, because of all the cuts to that, then it's impossible for young officers to get the kind of schooling that I got. And it's much to their detriment, can I tell you? Much to their detriment. The other thing I was going to talk to you about, Tom, other than robberies, when cash movements were a big thing about the country, was housebreaking. Because it's something that I think the numbers have dropped significantly for over the years. And this was a fantastic time for housebreakers. Uh, because of the dark nights, they can see when houses are empty, etc., etc. And because there's valuables in the house around this time of year, both the cash we're talking about and presents. And I've been at some absolute, and that's where the police came in back in my day, was where a house was broken into, everything stolen two or three days before Christmas. The police were great at rallying around the community and making sure that family's Christmas wasn't ruined completely. You remember it like that too? Housebreaking was seen by many as being a property crime. I never saw it that way. I saw housebreaking as being uh, akin to a personal assault because there's nothing worse than to people who've experienced it. Someone coming into your house, into the privacy of your house and stealing from you. It is a horrific thing. I remember I was a young detective sergeant. I remember going to this old woman whose house had been broken into. She had been time and time again, her house had been, door had been kicked in. It was the time when heroin was raging and people were breaking into houses willy-nilly. And she'd had nothing much stolen, one or two pieces of jewellery, which are family heirlooms, etc. Just weed, nothing of any value. But she said to me something that I've never forgotten. She said to me, son, she said, I wish they'd attacked me in the street because at least I would have felt safe coming home at night. But there was that woman who was now frightened and insecure in her own home, and she would rather have been attacked in the street. And I always took the view right up through the ranks and, and drove, and a lot of people always remember me for this, and the Borders Police have gone on and on about housebreaking. I detested it um, because it's such a personal crime. It's not a property crime. It's a personal assault. I don't think it's treated the way we treated it back in the day, Tom. We should say that housebreaking is a Scottish crime, and there's not a crime of housebreaking. It's theft by housebreaking, or housebreaking with intent to steal. That's the actual charges that we would prefer. But I suppose, certainly down south, and as I imagine elsewhere, there'll be different names for what we're talking about is burglary. That's what the English forces would call it. Yeah. That's right. And funnily enough, it comes back in waves. Quite recently in our area, we've had quite a lot of houses being broken into during the night to steal the keys for cars, and then the car is stolen from the front driveway. So that's come back a bit. But it's all about the value of things, isn't it? Because in, in my young days, a colour television was a very expensive item and a desirable item. And so a colour television was the thing to steal, and it would always get colour tellies stolen. Most of them were rented, in fairness, but we'd get colour telly stolen. And then it moved on and it was car radios and car stereos and music centres. And, and videos, apparently. I don't remember, but apparently videos became part of that as well. 
the old VCRs. You wouldn't have any videos of the wilds of Argyla. Yeah. We all gathered in the local town hall and watched black and white movies, of course, in the sticks. <laughs> Were they silent? They have talkies. My mother used to say that back in the day in the schemes of Glasgow, you didn't have to lock your door. And one of the main reasons for that was that there was nothing worth stealing, really. Nobody had much. Everybody had the same. It was all pretty much standard that everybody could afford. It wasn't until later on, in maybe the 70s and 80s, when people started to aspire and technology moved on and things started. Well, did you not tell me recently that half of crime now, over 50% of crime is cybercrime? Was that you and I that had that discussion? That's what the, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police came out and said that quite recently. That's what it was, um, yeah. That's right. It went, it, housebreaking was always a problem in my service time, but the coming of heroin turbocharged it. And in the early 80s, I remember 83, 84, housebreakings just went off the chart. And it wasn't subtle. It was just doors getting kicked in and you were catching the people and you were putting them before the court and they would come out and the same thing would happen. And on, driven by heroin, which made an active criminal super active. If you had to, if you had to sustain a, a habit of £100 a day, which was a, a fairly healthy uh, heroin habit in these days, then to get £100 a day, you had to steal £1,000 a day in terms of goods. And to steal £1,000 a day, and that was every day, seven days a week. It was a terrible time. And I often think of the victims of that who had their houses broken into time and time again. Tom, these crimes against property are a whole subject on their own that are still prevalent, but in different ways now. Uh, for example, a lot of people have got CCTV, they've got cameras around their house, they've got alarm systems, they've got things that, uh, although these crimes were much more prevalent back 30 years ago, we didn't have the technology to deal with it like we have now. And, and even the police interrogating CCTV and whatnot is a big resource that's taken up as well. I always remember a case in Penalea, part of the G Division, on Christmas morning when I came on duty and there'd been a house breaking overnight and there'd also been a snowfall. There had been a wee smattering of snow had come down. And when me and my neighbour, Ross McClellan, went out and looked at the crime scene, in those days, at that time of year, we had to do our own scenes of crime as well. But that's another issue. Scenes of crime is another issue altogether, the IB, the Identification Bureau and all the rest of it. But we went out to the locust, and I remember Ross going out the back door and shouting to me, Simon, come and see this. And I went away through, and in the back garden there were footprints. Only one set of footprints coming in, one over a fence, and then and another set, the same guy going out again. Obviously, Ross and I <laughs> followed these footprints. And if you knew Penalee, some people that are listening to this will understand it's a big scheme near to Hillington, the big industrial estate in Glasgow. And all the houses look into each other. There are lots and lots of what we would call back courts, which made it a nightmare for policing. A lot of drugs in there, a lot of problems in there. But we followed the footprints, Tom, right to the guy's house. The guy who had been suspected of committing these house breakings, I mean, there was lots of, as you know, there was always half a dozen of these guys active at any one time. But that was a great capture with the snow in the morning. Even you might have caught him. It's funny, you, you talk about crime prevention, of course, you're absolutely right. In our young days, it was all about locks and bolts and, you know, physical, that sort of thing. And yeah, then it went physical on to, security. Yeah. yeah, then it went to CCTV and lights that came on automatically, PR lights and things. And now it's moved on again. And 
It's interesting, crime prevention is in itself a very interesting topic to cover exactly how the industry, the crime prevention industry, has matched the demand as it's going forward. And now, of course, it's all about online security. So it changes so quickly, the technology that's involved as well. And the PIRs you're talking about used to be a pain in the neck when they were in your backyard and the cat would trigger it and whatnot. But that's not the case now. They're much more sophisticated now. And of course, because of the internet, they can be monitored from far away, the other side of the world, actually, on your phone, on your mobile phone. So things have moved a lot since, since you and I had anything to do with this. The thing is, though, Simon, you've still got to update and maintain these things because I can't tell you the number of times I've been involved in investigations where there's a CCTV system and you, you go along and you find that the tape hasn't been changed for so many years and you find that the quality is very poor because it hasn't been maintained and you find that the lens on the camera has never been cleaned. So I mean, putting these things in is one thing, but actually maintaining them and making sure they're fit for modern purpose is another thing. And that's why we're going to get somebody in here who's just a wee bit more up to date than you and I, because <laughs> I don't think they keep the tapes. Remember, they used to be valid for 28 days. They had to keep a tape for 28 days. And they had a wee rack that they kept all these tapes in, the old videotapes. And after 28 days, that was it. You could forget all about it. There was always three or four tapes missing that cops had taken for other incidents before you. But I think you've just given us a clue to how out of date you are there with talking about the tapes. <laughs> and worse than that was the continually running tapes that used to run and run. And of course, the quality of the picture that you got deteriorated with time. So, Because yes. what they were doing was taking it out after 28 days and it would go back to the front of the queue again and would get taped over by the next period of time, 24 hours or whatever. So it was constant. The point I'm making is these things have all been superseded now. But even the most modern systems still require to be updated and still require to be maintained. And that's really the point of it, that there's no such thing as a thing that you can launch and leave, you know, forever. Yeah, and I think that's what we need to focus on. When we come to talking about these things, we'll be looking at people being vigilant about, just because we're saying that housebreakings, crime doesn't really change, it just moves, doesn't it? Criminals just change the way they operate. To, to suit the environment that they find themselves in. And that's a bit like the cybercrime. It's a bit like you're saying when heroin was the driver, the motive behind it, when drugs were becoming prevalent. The crime is still there and always will be, I would suggest. It just moves with the marketplace and with the, the environment that's round about it and the security that's in place or not in place to prevent it. So we need, need to always be vigilant. Human nature doesn't change that much, really. <laughs> You've probably got to go and get dressed up now and get your, your beard on. Listen, what I do in the print in my own <laughs> home is my own business. Thank you very much. <laughs> Tom, it's been a pleasure as always. I think we've touched the surface here. But we'll have many more Christmases to reminisce about as well. It's triggered a lot of stories for me about Christmas and New Year. I think it's that time of year when you think about old colleagues as well. that You spent Christmases with in the trenches, some of the things we get up to. So I shall wish you a Merry Christmas. And I'll speak to you before the new year and, and we'll have a chat. A pleasure as always, Tom. Just before you go, I'll just make you privy to one closely held secret. One year, I was called out. It was late Christmas Day. The murder had been on the early hours of the morning, Christmas morning. And we worked on this case and we had an extraordinary DCI, long gone now, a man called Dougie Shearer, lovely guy. 
Dougie Shearer always looked after his team and he had arranged for the squad, and there was be about a dozen of us, to go for our Christmas dinner at one of the finest hotels in the centre of Edinburgh. So we, we all alighted at this hotel Christmas night for Christmas dinner. And I can tell you, and I wouldn't mention this to members of my family, I hope they're not listening to this, it was perhaps the best Christmas dinner I've ever had. <laughs> but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. No, that's between you and I. That's exactly. between you and I. Exactly. Ah. Well, listen, have a, have, a, have a lovely Christmas yourself. Yeah. I hope everybody that listens to our podcast has enjoyed it, uh, what they've heard so far, this, and stays and stays with us because there's uh, a lot more of very interesting stories to come. And some from you, Simon, I've no doubt will be true. <laughs> Don't start a rumour like that. There's no chance of that. They need to be deniable. That's the whole thing. I'm waiting for the phone to go anytime now. Tom, we have a growing band of listeners and I haven't alluded to it today, but lots of questions coming in and lots of ideas coming in. For example, there's a very famous dairy in Glasgow called Nan's Dairy in Butterbiggins Road in Glasgow. And I've said before that it was a famous meeting place for cops from all over the city. The two places that you would meet people were Glasgow Sheriff Court in the morning. You know yourself, every morning at the Sheriff Court, there was a couple of hundred cops there. And you would meet old pals, old football players, whatever it might be. And the other place was Nan's Roll Shop in Butterbiggins Road. And I was in there the other day and she was saying, Simon, I heard your podcast. I've heard the first one and Billy loves it as her husband as well. So that was Marie, who's the daughter-in-law of Nan, who's gone well, Nan Caldwell. But that dairy's been there since the 70s and it's a real haunt of cops. So that's the kind of effect that it's having in people that are starting to, yeah, but to just, learn about Just it, think, yeah. Simon, as you get famous, she, she might actually present you with a bill for all these rolls you've had off her all these, all these years. <laughs> God forbid. Oh, I'm not using it anymore, Les. <laughs> Brilliant, Tom. All the best. And you too. Have a nice Christmas. Next time on Crime Time, Inc. One thing I remember distinctly on that night was one of the first, he was an old DO, been in the CID for many, many years. He came back from the mortuary and in the main office was myself as a DS and he was a DI. And he came up to the DI and he said to him, these guys have done this before. He said, and they'll do it again. <laughs>